will be in your presence forever and ever. We'll sing your praises forever and ever, Father, because of your awesome and undeserved amazing grace. Father, thank you for loving us despite ourselves. Open our hearts, Father. We want to hear from you this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. I am so honored to have a chance to speak with you this morning. Before I start, I just want to mention this to you. Um, as you're leaving, if you'd like more information about how to become a Christian or if you'd like to know a better way to share with others how to become a Christian, there are some brochures right out here on the table if you're exiting out these doors, so keep that in mind. For some of y'all this morning, we're going to finish and you're going to go, I wish I had some more information about this Jesus. Now, the next series that I'll be doing starting uh, next week right up through the new year, will be, what's the big deal about Jesus? I happened to be a college minister at one time and was talking to a student about Christ and all he'd done in my life, and he couldn't quite get it, and I tried to share further with him and further with him, and he finally said, I don't guess, what's the big deal about Jesus? So I want to be responding to that um, in the next few weeks, but this morning, I'm really excited to tell you about a story in the scripture, a historical event that took place with a guy named Nicodemus. But first, I want to just mention that those of you who are in the room and you're not yet followers of Christ or this church is not your thing, I understand because sometimes we church people can be kind of weird. I mean, there is actually a kind of in public places even we can be kind of weird. There were a couple of churches that were across the street from one another, a Presbyterian and a Catholic church. They kind of got into a little debate on the signs outside their buildings. This really did happen. So what happened was this. The Catholic Church uh, simply stated in their sign, all dogs go to heaven. Now the Presbyterian across the, pa the pastor across the street, he couldn't contain himself, so he responded with, only humans go to heaven and read the Bible. The priest couldn't leave it alone, and so he then put on his sign, God loves all his creations, dogs included. The Presbyterian guy couldn't leave it, so he responded with, dogs don't have souls, this is not open for debate. <laughs> they continued this conversation. Here we go, the priest said, Catholic dogs go to heaven, Presbyterian dogs can talk to their pastor. And how do you think the Presbyterian guy responded? Converting to Catholicism does not magically grant your dog a soul. And then the response was from the Catholic guy, free dog souls with conversion. The response was, dogs are animals, there aren't any rocks in heaven either. Now you'd have thought at this point they'd kind of leave this thing alone, let's just let's lay this thing to rest, but this was the Catholic guy's response. All rocks go to heaven. Let's start this whole debate over again. Let's do this one more time. So we Christians can get into some crazy kind of stuff, can't we? No doubt about it. But as we climb into this conversation this morning, I want you to realize uh, that Christianity is actually the, uh, there are more Christians in the world than any other kind of religious people group. There are about 2.3 billion Christians in the world right now. But I want to be fair to everyone in the room. Just because it's the largest sect of people in their belief system doesn't necessarily mean it's right. And that's what people have been saying for centuries is just because it's the most prominent doesn't necessarily mean it's right. Rick, you've got to give me some more concrete evidence 
other than 2.3 billion people think it's the right one in order for me to begin to consider believing in Jesus. So we find a guy in the same kind of boat. His name is Nicodemus. He and Jesus are having a conversation. I want to quickly share with you four things, four assumptions that Nicodemus wanted to deal with and then share with you what Jesus' response was to him. First of all, the miracles of Jesus was one question Nicodemus had. Now, here's the deal. Nicodemus wasn't on Jesus' team. In fact, his job was to kind of question this whole Jesus movement. So he was really more to be more contradictory than anything else, but he couldn't ignore the miracles of Jesus. So, you know, Jesus was bringing people back to life after they died, and he was causing nature to contradict itself. Jesus publicly fed 5,000 people with five loaves of bread and two fishes and had leftovers. Not only that, he turned water into wine, which I think some people thought was the coolest thing he ever did. But Nicodemus couldn't walk away from the fact that Jesus was accomplishing miracles. In fact, he said to Jesus, we know that you were a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you were doing if God were not with him. Some people have said to me, and maybe to you too, if you've been in conversations much with people about Christianity and spiritual matters, if you could ever show me someone who's experienced a miracle, I mean like a healing, I'll at least continue the conversation. And I would say to you that I can He couldn't be here today because he's still recuperating. We'll talk about that further in a few moments. But there's a fellow in this church named David Keene. David's a very impressive guy. I'm just going to read the notes that he sent to me. And for those of you that know David, you may be thinking, I'd like to hear from David. As soon as David gets to the point he's got the strength, I'm going to ask him if I can interview him on stage so you can hear him speak himself. But I want you to listen closely to what he sent me. About his diagnosis, on June 10th, the doctor reading my CAT scan told me it indicated metastatic colon cancer that had metastasized to my lungs and liver. We began asking for prayer. On June 18th, after a biopsy, the diagnosis was revised to a very aggressive form of lymphoma that was spreading rapidly. The initial PET scan showed that it was spread all over my body and was even in my bones. I was prescribed a chemotherapy regimen using two different combinations of drugs in order to attack the aggressive cancer. There were to be four rounds of each combination for a total of eight treatments. It is almost impossible to describe what the prayers of the church to Christ were like and to measure their impact I can say that I relied on them daily and was comforted by them. They were like a warm blanket to me. Before I went to Vanderbilt on July 1st, there was a prayer gathering here at the church. I could barely walk down the aisle to be prayed over, and yet that very prayer lifted me up in a way I cannot explain. I know there are countless members of this church, along with family and friends, who prayed for me daily. I needed it and absolutely felt it. Then there are those who, however weak I might have been, I reached out to when in crisis. These were dear saints who I knew would pray the pain off the walls, and many even sent me scripture that the Lord would give them. I do not know how I would have made it without the, the strength drawn from this prayer and scripture they shared. After only three of the eight prescribed treatments, I had another PET scan. 
that PET scan showed that there was no cancer anywhere. Yes. The doctor had no explanation for it being gone so quickly, but I did. It was clear to me that God had healed me as a result of the prayers of his people to our Jesus. Now, I want you to hear something. This is a, from a person who realized the situation they were in and the God that loved them. But you know, some of y'all may still be thinking, well, he was going through treatment. They used the treatment just happened to work more quickly. I'm going to ask those of you that are believers in this room to give testimony. In a moment, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand if, and I want you to hear my if before you raise your hand. I don't want anyone to exaggerate. If someone in your life that you know has experienced miraculous healing, if someone in your life you know who had been in a car wreck and you saw the car and said, and they've said, they said no one should have survived that, anything that only someone like God, only someone who is God, that only God could have accomplished because there's only one God, would you raise your hand if you've seen a miracle like that in the life of someone you know personally? Yes. We've answered the miracle question. But we've got to go to the next concern, the other assumption uh, that was going to be difficult for Nicodemus. Is Jesus irrational? Because if this person who says you can get to heaven through him is irrational, then obviously he's not rational enough for me to follow his directive in order to make it to heaven. He does seem irrational, I must confess, because he tells Nicodemus, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Nicodemus asked a question that made sense if God was, if Jesus was speaking, I mean, I mean, just perp, I mean, he was telling exactly what needed to happen. He said, how can someone be born when they are old? That's what Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their, their mother's womb to be born. Now, I've never had a child, but I've spoken to some women who had nine-pound babies, and I've got a feeling they wouldn't be hot on that idea, right? What we need to realize here is that Jesus was speaking figuratively, what he was literally saying to Nicodemus was, if you want to be spiritually reborn in order to go to heaven, you have to be rebirthed in Christ. But to a lot of people, heaven or anything else that can't be proven through scientific method is irrational. Now, why are the things of Christianity irrational to many people? Let me give you one thought that makes sense. Uh, that seems to be true in lots of conversations you'll have today. Because some people believe that physical law is all that there is. And that you can prove that something is a reality when the scientific method is utilized in order to conclude that something really is concretely true. Scientific method says if you can do the same experiment again and again and again and again and again and again and have the same outcome then obviously that is true. The problem with this method is that there are physical laws, but there are also spiritual laws. And to try to conclude if a spiritual law is a reality, using a scientific method will get you nowhere. Because what happens in the spiritual realm is unseen, and matter is not necessary in order for God to be at work. Ed Pfizer says this about trying to prove something is as in spiritual law, as true through scientific method. 
It would be a little bit like saying that because a metal detector has greater success at detecting metal objects like coins and so on, we ought to say, therefore, a metal detector can detect absolutely anything that there is to be revealed. A metal detector will not detect everything. It will not detect a tennis ball. It won't find women's scarves. That doesn't mean they don't exist. That doesn't mean they're not there under the sand. It will detect that which it is designed to detect. Francis Collins, who was the head of the Human Genome Project, one of the most rewarded and recognized scientists of our day, and also a follower of Jesus, put it like this. Science is the only reliable way to understand the natural world, but it is powerless to answer questions such as, what is the meaning of human existence? We need to bring all the power of both scientific and spiritual perspectives to bear on understanding what is both seen and unseen. It's very true. We can't use a method that doesn't utilize matter to conclude something that is unseen that is not about matter. Now, some will say, well, Rick, it would be wonderful if God revealed himself in science. He really does. We don't have time to get into it deeply, but you can talk to many a Christian scientist, and they'll point out again and again and again and again and again how God is at work. In one of those ways that he is at work is uh, actually is that the Bible says that he, uh, he holds everything in the universe together. He holds the universe together. Let me say that one more time. God holds the universe together, and if he did not, it would implode. The exact verse is Hebrews 1.3, and it literally reads, He upholds the universe by the word of his power. The California Institute of Technology utilizes a book titled The Feynman Lectures on Physics. In that book, we find this paragraph. We may ask, what holds a negatively charged electron together since it has no nuclear forces? If an electron is all made up of one kind of substance, each part should repel the other parts. Why then doesn't it fly apart? But does the electron have parts? Perhaps we should say that the electron is just a point and that electrical forces only act between different point charges so that the electron does not act upon itself. Perhaps. All we can say is that the question of what holds the electron together has produced many difficulties in the attempts to form a complete theory of electromagnetism. The question has never been answered. It has been answered. It's Hebrews 1.3. You see, if these electrons were to come apart, the world would implode. God holds the world together. That is who keeps things in place. And while science is a friend of Christianity, it cannot do, it cannot do that which only God is capable of. In fact, there's an old story. Obviously, it's not in the Bible. Obviously, it's not true, but it's a great illustration. A group of scientists got kind of cocky and said to God, Hey, man, you know, we've cloned. We've done this. We've done that. We can do anything you can do, God. And God said, Well, let's put it to the test. Can you create a human being? And the scientist said, oh, yeah, we can. Sure we can. And as they reached down to pick up the dirt, God said, get your own dirt. You see, everything that we've been able to accomplish is only accomplished with that which God has created. 
God is the beginning of all things and the end of all things. God is all that made and God is all that there will ever be to create. He put laws in place that are physical laws and laws in place that are spiritual laws. We need to keep that in mind. Now let's imagine that we're Nicodemus at this point. Jesus has proved that he is rational. He is known as being the son of God. He is the one who put all of our questions in order, and he is the one who works miracles. At this point, if I'm Nicodemus, I'm saying I'm ready to hear more. Well, Jesus knew that he was. Once they had settled all of this, here's what Jesus told Nicodemus. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Now the first great point we find there is that God loves the people who are on planet earth. God loves every one of us that are on planet Earth. In fact, if we go back to the very first humans, we find a great historical event taking place. You probably know the beginning of the story, but you may have never heard a little more of the story. We've all heard of the part when God created Adam and Eve and put him in the garden, the perfect place, no sin, no problems, nothing of that nature. He puts him in that place and he says, there's only one responsibility that you have. Don't eat from that one tree. That's the only thing that is required of you. Don't eat from that one tree. And we all know the story. Satan slivers in and tempts Eve, and she partakes, and then Adam partakes. And after that, what happens is this. Because they now have sin upon them, they are in shame because of their nakedness. And so when Jesus comes back into the garden, they hide very interesting thing here is that they hide from the one who gave them life. Here's how the passage reads when Christ enters. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Now, if I am God, at this point I'm pretty hacked. I gave you the perfect eternal scenario There will never be pain. There will never be death. There will never be struggles. You'll live in utopia for all of eternity. Because I'm a human father, and I sometimes am very weak, and maybe some of y'all have had fathers who might have been kind of vengeful. It might have been that I said to him, said to them, live with it. You got yourself into this mess. Or he might have ignored them altogether. Or he, like many fathers, might have never spoken to them again. Or he might have abandoned them. But God is love, and his response is found a little later in the story. Here's what the historical record says. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. The one need they had. This loving father, although all they had done is hurt him was meet their need. And that's who God is. He loves his flawed people so much that he wants to meet their need. And he knows that their greatest need is for them to have eternal life with him in heaven. 
So after establishing the fact that God loves us, Jesus goes on to tell Nicodemus that God gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. From Genesis 3 to the end of the Bible, the whole time all God's wanting to do is to regain a relationship with us. That's what he's about. That's what he longs to do. That's what he is all about. And here's the deal. If you have sin on you, you will never enter heaven. I want you to listen closely to me for just a few moments. If you have sin on you, you will never enter heaven. Because when Christ returns, Satan and all of his demons and all evil will be placed in, a, in hell and never be able to get out. In heaven there will be no sin of any kind. So if you have sin on you, you cannot enter heaven because that will be a place where there will be nothing of that nature. So you say to yourself, what does that mean to me? It means that you need to realize if you've not accepted Christ that you still have sin on you. You were born with sin on you because you're in the lineage of Adam. So when you were born, you had sin on you, but let's be honest. Any of us who have lived four or five years or beyond have continued to sin, haven't we? We still sin. There's still the scent of sin on us. A college with an established football team wanted a mascot, so they got a goat. The question was where to keep that goat, and there were a couple of students on that football team, young guys, who said, we'll keep the goat in our room. And the coach was real concerned He said, I I hear you're going to keep the goat in your room. What about the smell? And one of those guys looked at that coach and said, oh, the goat will get used to it. If you've ever been around college boys, you know that's probably a true story. Here's the deal. God will never get used to the scent of sin being on someone. God will never get used to the scent of sin being on someone. But because God is love... He made a way for your sin to be removed from your person. What did he do? He gave his only son to die for your sins. God sent his son, Jesus, to planet earth to die for your sins. You see, one of the spiritual laws that God put in place was that in order for there to be atonement for sin, blood had to be shed. Uh, around the church we use this term if you're not around church much this will sound really weird to you but we talk about being washed in the blood sounds nasty doesn't it realize that that again is figurative it is symbolic what we're saying is because Jesus shed his blood if we accept God's offer of grace we will be washed white as snow there will be no longer sin on us and that blood is the what is the thing that washes us clean So you may be thinking, okay, Howerton, uh, this kind of makes sense. But you haven't told me the most important thing. The big question is, is there anything I have to know, believe, or do in order to have these sins erased from me? Is there anything I need to know or do in order to have these sins erased from me? Actually, you have nothing you need to do because Jesus has already done it for you. But there is something you have to believe. Jesus told Nicodemus this, whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. In another place in the Bible, it says this, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart 
that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You may be thinking, that just sounds too easy. You may be thinking, I'm more bad than I am good. First of all, let me say, well, welcome to my team. The difference between me and you is when God looks at me, if you're not a believer, the difference between me and you is this. When God looks at me, he doesn't see the sin that is on me because I've been washed in his blood. He still sees sin on you. And he says if you'll simply believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he died on the cross for you and raised from the dead, you will be transformed. You will be cleansed through the power of the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed on the cross. Now, some of y'all may be thinking, I don't know that I can put my trust in a God that I've never seen before. Well, let me ask you this question. Do you put your trust in a pilot you've never seen before when you get on a plane? Why, certainly you do. Because you know he has knowledge that you don't have. That he has abilities that you don't have. That he is capable of doing things that you cannot do. And my brothers and sisters, that is precisely who Jesus is. Only he can wash you white as snow. Only his son Jesus could have gone to the cross and died for your sins because there was no sin on him. And if you will believe that Jesus is the Son of God, died resurrected from the dead, and pray to start a relationship with him this morning, you will experience what it means to know Jesus Christ. Would you bow your heads, please? If you're not a Christian, you've come here this morning and you've heard all about this, you have a friend who's a believer and you've watched their life and you see there's something in them that you wish might come your way, you'd like to be transformed. First, let me say that Jesus can do this for you in an instant this morning. He's done it for me and multitudes that are seated around you. I want to walk through those necessities again and I want you in your mind to answer each one one at a time. The first question is this. Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Now, if you just answered yes to that question in your mind, you've taken the first step to moving forward to become a Christian. The second is, do you believe that he came to earth to die for your sins? If you answered yes to that question, you're almost there. And then do you believe that he rose from the dead? you believe that he rose from the dead? If you believe those things and you want to become a Christian this morning, if you can pray the prayer that I'm about to lead you in in full sincerity of heart this morning, you will experience the greatest moment in your entire life. So if you believe those things and you want to become a Christian, repeat this prayer after me. God, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I need for you to wash my sins from me. I believe that your son Jesus came to earth and died on the cross. I believe he rose from the dead. 
And I'm asking you, God, to forgive me of every sin I've ever committed. And please forgive me of every sin I will commit. Thank you for saving me this morning. Now, if you keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed for just a moment. If you prayed that prayer, would you just lift your hand right now so I can see who you are and continue thinking about you? Yes, I see you. Are there others? Just raise your hand right now. If you would, just keep them raised until I see you and make eye contact with you. Yeah. I'm so happy for you this morning. In just a moment, we're going to have what we call an invitation. Uh, This is an invitation to allow you to come speak with me about the decision you made. I'll be right here in the front. But if you're a little hesitant about walking to see me in front of all these people, I'll be here after the service. But even if you're concerned about that, there's a card in the pew rack in front of you that you can fill out. And just mark that you want to talk more about becoming a Christian. You've already become a Christian, but we want to talk about that with you. And put it in the offering plate as it goes by. Thank you, brothers and sisters, for being here this morning. We're not going to stop now. The Lord may still be talking to people. I'll be here to speak with anyone who'd like to talk further about Christ. Let's just stand and sing and let God be God as we sing.